The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Art is most often seen as an adornment to everyday life, but not really uncovering the essential character of the world. To uncover reality, we instead focus on science, facts, and accurate descriptions. Yet these descriptions frequently do not settle the matter, and often lead us to conflict, dispute, all the while we're no closer to agreement on the essential nature of reality. So, should we instead see art not just an adornment, but also as a means of getting closer to the essence of what it is truly to be alive? Or is this just an empty romantic illusion that would leave us poorer, less productive, and less able to fend for ourselves in the world? Joining us to debate whether art can uncover the essence of the world are critically acclaimed writer Jane Teller, musical comedian and writer Easy Sutty, British philosopher James Tartaglia, and Pulitzer Prize poet Paul Muldoon. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, iii.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. I'll now hand you over to our host for this debate, Joanna Kavanagh. So let's meet our speakers. Jana Teller here on my far right is a celebrated novelist and essayist. She's previously worked as a macroeconomist for the United Nations and the European Union, and her novels cover a wide variety of contemporary and philosophical issues. I also have on my left Izzy Sooty, who's a comedian, actress, and writer, who rose to fame, as you'll all know, playing the quirky IT technician Dobby in the award-winning sitcom Peep Show. And she's also performed many sellout stand-up shows at the Edinburgh Festival. And I also have James Tartaglia, who's a philosopher and author of Philosophy in a Technological World, Gods and Titans. And James also leads the band Continuum of Selves, which combines jazz music with philosophical ideas in a jazz philosophy fusion. And we also have Paul Muldoon, who's a poet, critic, lyricist and playwright, who's best known for Moy Sand and Gravel, his Pulitzer Prize-winning collection of poetry, and recently collaborated with Paul McCartney for his latest book, The Lyrics, and has been known to play in the odd band as well. So the key question is, can art uncover the essence of the world, or is it simply a means of entertainment? And I'll start, Jana, in two minutes. Thank yes. you. <laughs> Thank you. The answer is yes, absolutely. Of course, art 
uncovers the essence of the world. People might see it as entertainment, the outer layer might be, but it goes to the essence. And I'm going to prove it to you today, because I know that what all of you at this festival are most concerned about is why, when there are so many big problems in this world, does everyone still prefer to look at cat videos? <laughs> and the one who gave us the answer almost 100 years ago in a poem is the Portuguese writer Fernando Pessoa. And because he goes straight to the existence of being a human or being a cat. And he says, oh cat, you're playing in the street as if it were your bed. I envy you the destiny that destiny is not. You are but a pawn in the hands of those who govern all there is. You do not knowing that's your will and feel just what you feel. Thus happiness is yours. You are the nothing that inhabits you. I look at myself and cease to be since I must see I am not me. So therefore we choose to look at cats. Um, and to go just a few steps further is what art can do and which was shown in this poem is it reveals to us who we really are. It's the magical mirror that shows us what's underneath the surface instead of just showing us the reality. It's the story behind the story, a way of processing our existence so we understand it at a whole deeper level. I think I will say nothing more since Pessoa has said all what there is to say about it. Great, thank you very much. I'm going to turn next to Izzy for an answer to this question. So, uh, uncovering the essence or entertainment. Well, I have to look at this through the prism of stand-up comedy, which is uh, the world I come from, and um, which is often overlooked as an art form, certainly by my parents for many years. <laughs> um, <laughs> but <laughs> the amount of, of blood, sweat and tears that goes into a single joke um, is sometimes unbelievable. Uh, when you reach your 20th preview and you're still trying to get that bit right about revolving doors, um, for example. Um, but I think laughter unites us as, uh, as an audience in a way that no other art form can. And if I think of the two times that I've been most moved or felt, I suppose, uh, propelled onto a higher plane, um, ha have been uh, once recently at a, a Strauss recital at the Barbican um, in London, and there was a moment where the conductor turned to one of the violinists, and there was just a moment of purity between them, and I, I can't, it was that moment that, that made me just, I just found myself tears streaming down my cheeks. I couldn't explain why, it was the joy they were taking in that moment of the music. Um, and another time when I was watching Johnny Vegas, who's an amazing live stand-up um, in Edinburgh, when it became like opera, he was so vulnerable. Um, it was like his ego was battling with itself on stage. And the, the thing that those two moments have in common are that I felt less alone. So uh, for me, um, well, I don't think I'm quite as qualified to answer what is the essence of, of reality or being a human as some of the other people on this panel. But um, for me, it's feeling less alone and knowing that someone shares in my pain, in my specific pain. And for some reason, those two moments had a profound effect on me. And yet it would have been something different for someone else in the audience. Um, so yes, absolutely. I think that art, um, I think the same as, <laughs> as probably everyone else. But um, because I think it's, it's there to make us feel connected. And for me, that's what laughter does uh, so well in terms of uh, my world of stand-up. Great, thank you very much, Izzy. I'll turn to James now, thank you. Well, I think it's a very good question because uh, a view has arisen now where it might seem reasonable that if you wanted to 
uncover the essence of reality. Well, what's art or, you know, got to do with it whatsoever? Well, in fact, if you go back to the beginnings of Western philosophy, like before even Socrates and Aristotle and Plato talk about Parmenides. Mm. Parmenides is poem, right? It's a poem. And it involves him being taken on a chariot across the sky where he meets a goddess in a house in the sky. And she says to him, okay, I'm going to tell you the truth about reality, but don't just take it on faith, right? I want to argue with you. She says, you know, trust, judge by reason my battle-hardened truth, by which she means, you know, it's a truth that she's fought many arguments about. She wants you to argue and dispute and consider it, you know? So it's taking place in a, in a, in a house in the sky, in a, in, a, in, a, in a poem, right? So art and the quest for the essence of reality are there together immediately. When you get to uh, Plato, something like Plato's Symposium. You've got Alcibiades' speech about how Socrates' reasoning drives people wild with passion, right? So there you, again, you've got this, uh, you've got Plato himself who, who tells stories and like allegories and, you know, different ways of seeing the world. You go through to the modern era, you've got, you know, well, after that, you've got Augustine, you know, having his confessions to God, Descartes meditating, Nietzsche in his aphorisms. Are we supposed to believe that all of what they said was it, you know, the, the, the artistic setting was entirely irrelevant and that I could just be, you know, some grey plaster guy with a PowerPoint giving the factual content of what, you know, well, Parmenides said this and Descartes said this and all the art was completely irrelevant. Now, the art wasn't irrelevant because that's what engaged people. That's what's turned philosophy into a two and a half thousand year conversation which never went away. It engaged people. Engagement doesn't mean it's entertainment, right? If a, if a vicious lion suddenly appears over there and it's going to rip my throat out, that's going to engage me pretty soon, right? I'm going to be, whoa. Okay, I'm not going to be entertained by that. Right? What the art has done, it seems to me, in the history of Western philosophy is engage people. And the idea it can be reduced to facts, zilch, end. Great, thank you very much. And Paul, are you going to break with the panel and, and say no? You know, I, I must say I'm tempted to. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, go on. Because otherwise, what's the point of being here? Um, and, and Is that an artistic question or a scientific <laughs> one? <laughs> so, you know, I, I will, for the moment, I'm going to agree pretty much with the rest of the gang. But, you know, if things become really dull, I might try to vary my position. <laughs> so I, I'll appeal very briefly to two Irish writers. What can I do? One of them is a fellow called Oscar Wilde. Oscar is reputed, well, he's reputed to have said many things. One of them is that <coughs> he said there were no fogs before Turner, right? In other words, our concept of what a London fog might be is absolutely comes to us through the prism of a work of art. Some people say that what he actually said was there were no fogs before Dickens, no sunsets before Turner. The jury's a little bit odd. But I think we, as to what precisely he said. But the point is that it's only, uh, again, when it comes through the prism of a work of art that we actually understand what the phenomenon truly is. My other Irish 
uh, writer is James Joyce. We're thinking a great deal about him at the moment, this year being the centenary of the publication of Ulysses next uh, week, of course, the centenary of Bloomsday. And I'm reminded of a letter that uh, Joyce wrote to his aunt Josephine late in 1921. And the, the gist of the letter was as follows. Is it possible for an able-bodied man to get over the railing at 7 Eccles Street and jump down into the area below? This was in the context of the piece that he was writing, of course, at the end of, uh, of Ulysses. He uh, was so taken by the notion of this fact that he absolutely had to get it right. Coincidentally, of course, he makes much up. But along the way, there are, there are those of us who continue to believe that you want, if you want to understand what Dublin meant and means, you can only do it through the prism of Ulysses. Thank you. That's great. Well, so we're going to look at this first theme, which I think is trying to look more at this difference between science and art. So we're going to look at whether art reveals reality, as we've heard already, various arguments that yes, it does. And if so, how is that different from science? So, I mean, James, you mentioned the PowerPoint initially in this sense, you know, that that would not convey reality in the same way. Can you bring that out a little bit more then? What, what is missing then in a PowerPoint, in your view? Well, a lot, in a, I mean, a PowerPoint can be a useful tool, but it, it can convey facts as a, as a general rule. And not everything there is to learn about reality is factual. Um, experience isn't factual. I mean, I can't give you a factual description of what a lime is like. All I'm going to be able to do is say it's a bit like a lemon, but if you've never tried a lemon, that's not going to help you, and then I could maybe compare it to something else. But you need, you need to have that experiential introduction in the first place. Um, but in a sense, I think that leads into what's distinctive about what art reveals about the world and what science does. Because art tends to reveal things within our everyday life, where we're people with goals, trying to do things. Somebody said something that pleased me, something said, you know, something's playing on my mind, you know, maybe I'm a little bit worried about something like that. That kind of reality, everyday reality, whereas science is more about going beyond that reality to something, you know, to uncover what the ultimate descriptions are, which, you know, allow us to go. But in, in a way, you know, the world, the world science often describes is very unlike our everyday lives. Um, you know, something which you can describe in a mathematical or descriptive way. Yeah, you could put that on a PowerPoint, but I can't tell you the flavor of lemon or what it's like to be on this stage, you know, doing this talk about the nature of art with these various people. That's, that's a different kind of thing. I think art, or another thing, just one final thing, it's not just that art illuminates aspects of our everyday lives and makes us realize things which are significant, things which are significant to human beings. It's also, it creates new realities, music, plays, poems, these are things which we become concerned. It's, it's a creative endeavor. So it's not purely descriptive, it's also creative and gives us, you know, and once these things have been created, like a poem or a novel, then we have big discussions about it and we try and describe that thing. So it creates something new for us to reveal the essence of. 
Yeah, I mean, Yanni, you've you've gone from one discipline to another. You've been a macroeconomist and a novelist. So, I mean, is there artistry in macroeconomics? Is there? I mean, macroeconomics you know, is macro fiction of its own right, but in a different yeah. way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, the way I see it, both yeah, economics, but any science, even a philosophy, also uh, proves itself by having to be true for the many. You make empirical studies. Um, through numbers or through uh, thought experiments, and it's the thing that it applies to everyone that is always the proof. And art works just in the absolute opposite way. It's because it is true to the individual that it applies to the many. And let me go through literature, since that's my, my field, that if you read a novel or a poem about of you know, people who are totally different from you, different culture, still if it's good enough art, you will feel you forget who you are, you live yourself into this story and become one or more of the characters and you feel if you were them, if you had those life conditions, this poor kid in that African village, you would do exactly as they do. You would believe in those spirits, you would be afraid of them as they are, even if you don't believe in spirits in your normal life. That's the power of art, and that's where you find that truth of human condition, because we have a lot in common, and that is shown through the use of the specifics of the individual, as a story does or a poem does. But it hits on what we all have in common. You know, that the sensation of sadness, it might be different things that make us sad, the feeling of shame feels the same, even if it's different things that makes us feel ashamed. And that's the strength of art, that it proves itself yeah, through the individual. Yes, I mean, Izzy, if I can bring you in, because you were talking about Johnny Vegas and the kind of vulnerability and then how that affected you. And I was thinking stand-up comedy is very much first person, isn't it? It's very much you present a vantage point, whereas I guess in science there's this notion that the ideal is the objective, that the first person has kind of been removed. Although, of course, we'll come to Paul, who writes about the observer and the observed in a moment. But I was thinking in terms of that, is that something then to you? It seems like that's very much part of what you're doing, is it? That it's in, it's expressing a first person. Yes, I think when stand-up works, um, and people, most people here will have been in, in gigs that work brilliantly, maybe even here, and felt it's almost a holy experience at times. You feel you're all part of a single moment. It can feel like a religious experience because you're all together. And when a comedian dies, it's very interesting because it's like the air thins. And, um, you know, we all die, especially at the beginning of our careers. And I was once paid £20 to leave the stage in Edinburgh <laughs> Festival. Um, so it was going <laughs> so badly. Um, but actually, they're very important when you're learning those experiences. So you have to tell yourself, um, when uh, they are very important because you're finding out who you are and you have to be truly vulnerable in stand-up. And I think that the, t the times that stand-up's disappointing is where they're not reaching out in that way. They're not giving you enough vulnerability. And it feels weird in some ways to say that you have to be vulnerable as a stand-up. It seems like a very powerful thing. But actually, it's a, a delicate line uh, that you have to tread. You have to offer enough of yourself. So that a similar thing, the, the comedian may be very different from you as a member of the audience. They may be talking about something that you have no experience of, but you will find that, that point at which you feel truly connected to it. Um, what I find very interesting is when people like Robin Ince, who are comedians and also become very immersed in the world of science, make shows where science and crea creativity meet. Um, because my father was a, a chemist, he was a very scientific man. 
and he he didn't really like blurred lines he didn't like it necessarily when things were uncertain or um so yeah I, I find it very interesting when when any kind of creativity and science meets and 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 what what that brings about because on paper it should clash in some ways but i think it could be quite an interesting mix well paul you do that in all your work you're using like in 1000 things worth knowing and you have references to science and so if i bring you on in on this is that quite important to you to be able to glean from many disciplines well it is absolutely and in fact i think maybe at this point i might begin to migrate a little <laughs> bit <laughs> over to to another way of thinking about things and i touched upon it briefly when i mentioned joyce's obsession with this factoid I mean, who cares? Who cares at the end of the day? Well, he cared. And he, what, why did he care? Because at some level, I think he realized that one does have to test art against some notion of reality. Now, I use the term notion of reality because we know reality is I think we know reality is itself a construct. On the other hand, we have, in our everyday discourse, um, it's a term we understand. Um, now, Joyce did not care so much about the fact that a major component of the plot of Ulysses um, ha has to do with the, a foot and mouth uh, pandemic, right, in 1904. And he didn't really care that that actually happened in 1912. He was willing to overlook that fact in terms of some other motive. But let's, but, but I think we are constantly testing the psychological verifiability, say, not only the physical verifiability of whether or not one can go down this particular street and actually if you turn right you're in this other street that's one test the psychological verifiability is this likely to be how a man might respond to the notion that someone has been as he comes home at night and comes down into the area over the railings in seven Eccles street uh, uh, Leopold Bloom's home, what is he going to make, if anything, of the fact that his wife may have been with another man? And we have, we have ways of testing that. So that's one little thought. Facts are important. Constructs they may be, but our accepted notion of how the world functions is important. I had the privilege dubious privilege in the sense was a terrifically hard job of being the poetry editor of the New Yorker for 10 years I went in saying if I do this if I live for 10 years uh, if I if I'm able to spend 10 years doing this I'm going to leave at, at the very moment of the 10th anniversary but one of the things we had there and it was really shocking to many people was we had a fact checker in the poetry department <laughs> And obviously there are, there are facts that one will not be checking. Much have I traveled in the realms of gold? Probably not. We're not gonna be fact-checking that, right? But we might be fact-checking a fabulous friend of mine, poet friend of mine, James Richardson, had a poem about clouds 
in which he described how many clouds weighed as much as a 747. And I could tell you they were onto that immediately. (laughs) (laughs) Really? And, you know, I myself had been fact-checked there about a particular about a particular little um, marine animal that uh, casts a shadow in a shallow lagoon, right? And it has devised a system of, uh, by bioluminescence of shining a spotlight on its own shadow. Oh, am I making this up? Do we have any fact checkers in the audience? Shedding a spotlight on its own shadow so that its prey will not be aware of its coming. Now, is that a fact or actually it's a fact? And they fact checked it right the way down to the person who specialized in this particular area in the Pacific. And you know what? I admire that. And I actually, I had something in the poem that was quote unquote wrong, and I changed it. Because at the end of the day, why not get it as right, insofar as we understand what being right might mean, why not get it right? So as I say, I'm migrating, I love the idea of migration. In the the underwater world, I love the idea of all those flat fish that have eyes initially on both sides of their heads, and then one of the eyes migrates over. Right? So they're both on one side. Am I making this up? But in any case, so, <laughs> the, so here we go. So in other words, facts are important. So I'm moving over to slightly the other side. Well, that's really helpful, because you're, you're going to be helpful in this next section, <laughs> I, I'm sure. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> We're now going to talk, so this hypothetical question that I mentioned in the opening about if we decided suddenly to focus on art as the fundamental basis of our culture, what would happen and would we be poorer and less productive and so on? I guess it would mean if, if instead of TED talks being performed you know, by neuroscientists to vast audiences, suddenly they asked uh, you know, novelists for what we should all do next. And so I wanted to turn to you, James, because you have an antithetical view on this. You've written about how there's a lot of bad art around. So I wonder if we were being legislated by really bad artists. I mean, that might not be a good idea. There's a slight notion in this that art would fundamentally be, you know, lustrous and, you know, high-minded. But it could just be a lot of really, really terrible art, couldn't it? Well, you know, if if the issue is, you know, whether we should be led more by artists uh, at the moment, makes me think back to um, my favourite idea from Aristotle, his, his idea of the doctrine of the mean. And he says, you know, if you've got a problem with, with cowardice, you aim to be recklessly brave. Okay, so if you're, a bit, if you're a bit chicken, you aim to be just absolutely reckless. And you'll probably end up roughly in the right place. Okay, if you're, if you're a miser, right, you just aim to give away all of your money and, you know, hopefully you'll end up in roughly the right place. Um, Well, the kind of society we are in at the moment, um, I think we should aim to be completely led by artists, just 100%, okay? (laughs) And maybe, because this is a world which is led by business and science in which there are multi-billionaires who, you know, individuals who have more money than an entire nation of, 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 you know, of, of people. I do not see that a, some, you know, we're ever going to be able to get to a stage where art is endangering our industry and people's like desire to go out and make huge amounts of money. We are so massively away from that. So 
in accordance with the doctrine of the mean, I'd say, yeah, let's go for a lot more artistic um, influence on society. And, and why, do, why do I actually think that's important? Because we're being, um, you know, our lives are being changed by technology and technological development. And I think a lot of people are not engaged with that process. And they buy into new technologies which change our lives because it's fun. Um, and it's produced because people know it will sell. And that's kind of how our future is being determined. You know, the consumer is saying it's fun and the people producing it saying that will sell. You know, if we, if we had a little bit more artistic engagement with our ideas and our facts and our science and our philosophy, then, you know, a bit more like Parmenides going on it through the sky on his chariot, you know, maybe people get a bit more interested in these sort of things. And people, you know, you can have some kind of democracy, some kind of democratic element enter into the process of technological development. That's why I think it's important to get art involved because it, it engages people. And I think there's just disengagement. We just take what's given to us by people working behind the scenes. I mean, Izzy, during the pandemic, I was thinking as someone who works within performance and it seemed that people did have a real craving for then those you know performances of plays online and there was that yearning for uh, even as we we're being following the science and all of that there was a yearning for something artistic within that was that something you noticed in your own field yes um and i think there's definitely a place for that to carry on because there are people who can't leave the house for various reasons not to do with covid um and they were able to watch a comedy and, and various th debates like this and um, plays and so on from their own homes, which I think is brilliant. I think it should carry on. But performing stand-up on Zoom, looking at a massive version of your own face sometimes, doing your material sometimes to silence, or the chat function being open and seeing people discuss what they were going to do next while, while you were on stage was odd, discombobulating. Um, However, it was quite interesting to go through as a performer and a writer. Um, and the pandemic did force us to think differently about how we, how we create art and what we do and even how we write. I was writing a book and I wrote differently because I couldn't see people. But I suppose when you engage, I, I think it's difficult not to engage with art. So if we did replace all the TED Talks with some kind of art, even if it wasn't very good art, even if it was back-to-back -back episodes of Married at First Sight, I, s I still think that would generate a response. And even if you're talking about, oh, why didn't that relationship work? And how does that reflect on my relationship? It's different from watching something that you feel very uh, detached from. But it's interesting, because what is bad, you, you can get. If we did say, everything has to be art now, you'd get such a wide variety of things and such a wide variety of, of quality, and there'd be disagreements about what was good and what was bad. Whereas science feels more cut and dried, what is bad science? Communicate, it, it's, it's black and white, isn't it? Well, it shouldn't be factual inaccuracies. It should be a, a, a thing that's not relevant to society. But I think definitely we should replace everything with art. And I think technology is, I, I think it's very damaging the way that we consume facts and that if they could be communicated through art, we'd think about the way we form opinions differently and discuss our opinions differently and perhaps come to different conclusions but the way the way especially with social media that things are presented to us I think it feels cold and you're disengaged and uh, I think that's the way that things become more polarized as well yes I mean Yana if you do you think if if Sage had had 
um, nothing but artists and you know novelists on it instead of you know scientists and behavioral scientists what what on earth would have happened i uh, mean if what, what had happened sorry if sage sorry the, the you know the kind of advisory board oh that right, was advising yeah. the government the scientific advisory group which may you know constantly advise the government during the pandemic just finishing off on the pandemic as an example i guess do you think that would have been totally different running of the pandemic if we'd had artists I think quite a lot of things would have been different because, I mean, what artists have to do if they're, if they're any good and that's what it's all, you know, is to understand yeah, what goes on in people at a deeper level and try to communicate that, um, that really good art is always a letter from the soul of the artist to the soul of the recipient, and that's no matter what, what kind of art we talk about. But it takes a little bit more time than that standard conversation that's had in politics or the everyday debate. But what I don't understand is, you know, in a lot of schools, I'm not quite sure how it is here in England, but in Denmark, you know, morning song is considered if you want to lift the kids. But why don't every parliamentary session not start with the reading of a poem it sets the tone totally different that you have just in a way every meeting in any business should start with the reading of a poem because it forces every participant to just reach themselves who are they really as human beings not as functions of a capitalist system that needs to make money or a voting system that needs to sell some idea that they can get more votes and more power it's all that idea of selling goes away if you start having it to reach your deeper human self and from there i believe we take better decisions because it's not that the poet or the writer or artist themselves take better decisions or give better advices. I mean, history shows many artists, unfortunately, have been facets, you know, yeah. Hamson, a Nazi and whatever, mm -hmm. but they knew how to reach the soul. And when we reach the soul, we take better decisions. I mean, so just to try and complicate this distinction between art and science a little, Paul, I mean, I was thinking what you said earlier about the fog. And so you create a notion of the fog and the sort of observer then creates a certain version of what is seen. And I guess science has reached that revelation in some fields, hasn't it, in the quantum realm and the idea that the observer affects what's being observed. And so this kind of maybe former distinction between the world and the individual may not be so polarized in art and science. Could that be one way where we're not just dividing them utterly? Oh, I, I, I don't think they, I mean, they, they may not be divided. They, they may not be divided. Um, you know, I do think that, uh, you know, as we read anything, we're, te uh, to go back to what I was saying earlier, we're constantly testing each word, each sentence with our own lived experience, to use a phrase that's much used these days, including, including when we meet the word lemon in a work of literature, as we do, by the way, in James Joyce's Ulysses. A lemon is a central component, resonating in various ways. We test it against what we know ourselves a lemon to be, and then, with any luck, actually, we're pushed to a place where we did not expect to be, and that may not absolutely square up with the facts. But I think there is a relationship between the two. And we, you know, we can't we can't get to be 
without having some sense of A. I don't I hope that doesn't sound too gnomic, but there's some, we have to have familiarity, um, acceptance of, of a basic, of a shared notion before we begin to play with it. So, I mean, various things were coming to mind there, uh, and as I said, no, I'm not at all sure which side I'm on. I was interested, by the way, in the, in the notion of the good poem, you know? How, who determines what a good poem is? That's going to be a, a tough job. That's going to be a job for the poetry czar, who will have quite a large office somewhere, right? I mean, because, um, you know, I love the idea of starting the day with a poem. I do love that idea. I love the idea of um, every newspaper in this country, for ex just to stick with this country for the moment, should be carrying a poem every day, right? One of the reasons why that is the case is that it would actually diminish the notion that art is something strange, mysterious, something that we can't all partake of in the way that we might actually partake of um, um, particle physics in a strange way. I mean, and, and for some reason, we think we might be able to understand quarks better than we might James Joyce, um, that they're more intelligible in some strange way, though the word quark, as you, quark, as you know, derives from James Joyce. There's this notion that um, that the, the sciences are indeed uh, more involved with facts, which, which is simply not the case. And I would love more scientists to uh, acknowledge that they are involved themselves in surmises. And, uh, and that, in fact, they would honor the creative aspect of science, right? Um, and notions of what, I think there was a debate earlier on at 12, I didn't get to it, I'm afraid, about whether or not the notion of the, the multiverse is a construct, is actually something that belongs more in the realm of the poem than it might in the realm of what? The abacus? Um, I don't know. Yeah, great. I mean, let's turn now to where we think culture's going, which uh, we've kind of touched on a bit. James, I wanted to bring you in on Paul's question, really. Would it be good then for scientists to honour this creative aspect of science? And would that then allow for this, you know, a, a smooth movement into a wonderful combination of both in a, you know, a glorious enterprise? I mean, there are certain, I mean, against a certain uh, background assumptions and once you've defined your terms I guess you can achieve objectivity in in science otherwise it wouldn't be so useful for you know the technology which you know, feeds our world allowing mobile phones to work and you know these sound systems to work and planes not to crash etc so I take it a certain objectivity is is achieved um, but that objectivity is achieved by uh, going down below the level at which everyday life operates and in which people have emotions and people aim for goals and look at their lives and you know try and work out what they're doing it, it involves talking about things like quarks um, and you know I think if you get to the point where you think that quarks are more real than people then you've probably got some kind of metaphysical confusion there um, <laughs> personally but I mean if you, th the original question was you know where are we 
where are we heading to? I think some kind of virtual reality. If anybody was at my talk this morning, they'll already know that I think that. And the reason that I, you know, it might sound like a weird and silly thing to say, but as soon as we get out of here, everybody's probably going to look at their phone and then you'll walk down the street and you'll see all people staring at their phone and there are people, you know, playing video games 12 hours a day. And I think we're being dragged into um, a kind of disconnected reality. Well, there'll be art in that. Yeah, there'll be plenty, but there'll also be plenty of trouble as well. Um, we'll create trouble by leaving this world behind. Um, but it's being facilitated by these objective descriptions which uh, allow the the technology and I think if we got a little bit more involved in these in this knowledge and I think the way of getting involvement is through engagement is through art come back to my example of the the furious lion over there that would engage me it doesn't mean it's entertaining me um, so it's a mistake to equate engagement, which is what art does. It like brings people into the fold of expanding knowledge um, to, to confuse that engagement with mere entertainment or, you know, mere, um, you know, frivolity in some sense, you know, as, as like Izzy was saying, laughter is something that combines people. Music does. Um, Parmenides, right from the beginning of philosophy, was in, was bringing it up. Frankly, the, the philosophers that people read the most, even today, right, are the ones with the most art involved, right? And the really sort of straight, factual ones, uh, obscure, in obscure journals, just being read by other philosophers. So, you know, it seems to me that philosophy, as of a, just say my personal interest, right, as opposed to science, doesn't need to engage in so much expert to expert, highly technical talk and is more important when it's out there in the world as it was for the Greeks and for many of the philosophers that still are important to people. I thought you were going to say, mm. you know, the ones we remember, the ones who are funny. I thought that might be because I, you know, I was thinking in terms of what you said about profundity and comedy. And in a way, a virtual <laughs> reality scape that was populated by, you know, comedy would be fantastic, wouldn't it? I mean, this wouldn't be so bad. So are there possibilities? I mean, in a way, we could sort of control these things, seize the you know, try and direct the culture of them, not just have them being dystopian, could we? I think being funny is a great way of getting information across and persuading people of your opinion. And actually, I've studied uh, religious cults over the years, and often the leaders of religious cults are funny. And that's the thing that makes, that gives them the power over people and gets them to do crazy things. Um, it's, it's, it's a very powerful tool to have and yes it certainly could be used for good and for bad so you know you have to you have to be careful but i, I agree really uh, with, with, with james that we're going in the direction of virtual reality it frightens me i'm 43 so i'm at a weird age where we didn't have phones when we were kids but now i, I and i don't know enough about technology i get very frustrated by it but i feel frightened of uh, the for me personally the neglection of the climate uh, for technology and um i think it's good by the way, to have these facts. I'm veering with you now away because it's towards the end, but actually I do think it's good to have something to kind of crash against, to have, uh, to have the facts uh, so that you've almost got the legato and the staccato. So I think it's possible to have art as an empowering thing um, whilst having these boundaries um, around it so that we can, yeah, just get, get facts across through through that more fun way uh, or creative way. The other thing is that I think art is empowering for the consumer in a, in, a, in a unique way so that people will always go away with an opinion or it will make them think creatively. I think that's a very important aspect of, of it if we're thinking about how we could change culture. 
Thank you. So I'll just let Yana and Paul, I just want you both to come in on where is culture going? Well, I have to now contradict my two colleagues here <laughs> because I really don't understand why we want virtual reality when we have reality. I think it's a mistake and it's somehow some young t college teenage guys who are absolutely brilliant invented these things. The world has gone off on something that does not connect us more to existence. And after all, we cannot discuss these things if we don't talk about what is the larger purpose of living? What is our priorities? Basically, what I hear when talking to everyone is their priorities reaching each other. And honestly, reaching people through a screen yeah, it was our last resort during COVID, but who wanted to say goodbye to their dying mother or hello to their newborns through a screen? Nobody. It's a mistake of humanity of large proportions, but my only hope is that since climate change is anyway coming because all these screens are using tremendous amounts of power and it doesn't look as if it'll stop for now, there will be some huge storms or whatever that'll you know, cut some of those cables. And I don't know if anyone else, but I was in New York in October, was it 2015, when one of those storms knocked out power in New York, the biggest capital, or not the biggest, the most modern capital in our world. All southern half of Manhattan was without power for a full week. It was dark, no traffic lights, nothing worked. All shops had to close because they could not you know, even secure themselves. It was pitch dark, you got over 39th Street, life was normal. And it took weeks before they then could restore Wi-Fi and other things. The main thing that happened in that week, besides those who couldn't reach the 28th floor, because there were no lifts working, of course, but was you get back to the very near, that it's you know essential you have a candle, you try to put on a kettle or something, and you're reminded of the precariousness of our modern lives. And once the terrorist finds out that you know flying planes into big buildings, uh, it's just a little way to hit some thousands of people, but you hit the power systems, or do you know, let the internet go down in big, you hit entire societies, we can't function. Let's get back to the real, to the near, that we are sitting here together talking, makes a whole lot more, and that's where culture is and can be shared. That's my... Um. <laughs> yes, exactly. Paul, I was thinking of your lines about it may be too late to save your soul, but it's never too late for rock and roll. I mean, is it, that's quite <laughs> optimistic, isn't it? Yeah, I, I would mean, agree with that. Did I say that? <laughs> you deny it. <laughs> denying <okay>. everything. <laughs> uh, you know, I do think, had we been talking, just to go back to that word fact, uh, and we know facts are complex. We, alas, you know, to, to use the word fact 10 years ago um, is not quite the same uh, as our using that word now. It, it's, we're already using it with sugar tongs. It's already in quotation marks because we know that the notion of the fact, however tenuous it might be, um, however unfirm it might be as a concept. Even so, I think one of uh, our many problems that that it, one of the problems that assails us is this um, disconnect between the thing and 
some and and the fact associated with it and we we have been at the mercy of um, too many people who have who have been distorting our realities and we have engaged much too readily in our separate realities which is now what we're dealing with so that when we do go back to our screen as you know better than I do the version of CNN's breaking news say or BBC's breaking news that you get may not be the same as the version of it I get I think that's right now that is a troubling notion and I think um, I'm not sure what we can do about it, but when, when our own news feeds are being tailor-made for us, that is surely a problem. Thank you so much for your, to all coming. Thank you. Thank you for your... Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, ii.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. <laughs>